Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to have you with us. We are less than 100 days away from November's general election. Meanwhile, this week, the U.S. surpassed 150,000 deaths caused by the coronavirus as many states continue to see a surge. We're talking about the states that are starting to see a little bit curve upward. They've really got to jump all over that because if they don't, then you might see the surge that we saw in some of the other southern states. The president renewed his commitment to questioning the integrity of our election system. And they say the projected winner or the winner of the election. I don't want to see that take place in a week after November 3rd or a month or, frankly, with litigation and everything else that can happen, years, years, or you never even know who won the election. And the Senate left town on Thursday without reaching an agreement on a new stimulus bill leaving millions of unemployed Americans in economic limbo. The coronavirus will not care if Washington Democrats decide it suits their partisan goals to let relief run dry. At this point, I'm beginning to wonder who does support the Republican proposal on COVID-19. Americans are weary and anxious, and we're isolated. The coronavirus has kept many of us separated from our families and the people and places that help center us and give our lives a sense of meaning. Political reporters, always self-conscious about getting caught in the D.C. bubble, have literally been unable to escape it. There are no more political rallies or conventions, no campaign bus tours. And all of this makes it hard for us to understand how voters are processing this moment and their choices for this November. To help us untangle all of this, we have joining us Tim Alberta. He's the chief political correspondent for Politico and Jane Coaston, a senior politics reporter at Vox. Hey, guys. Hey, how are you? Amy, what's up? Jane, I want to start with you. It feels like we're in something of a Groundhog Day loop here. The coronavirus is not under control. The testing situation is still a mess. The economy is not bouncing back. Most kids aren't going to go back to school full time. And yet the president doesn't seem to be talking about that a lot, at least not on Twitter This week, he was focused entirely on things like whether the election will be rigged and may have to be postponed. And he also talked about a rollback of Obama-era fair housing laws that he says will help protect the suburbs. So what is he doing here? What's going on? I mean, I want to push back a little bit because the president is well aware of how mail-in voting works, as he often (laughs) mail-in votes. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of this is about creating disorder. Um, There's some really smart reporting from the Daily Beast yesterday that's essentially that the president does not want to lose to Joe Biden and is willing to basically create disorder and create uncertainty in order to, in some way, push back or in some way foist off the potential of losing to Joe Biden. So I think that it's important to recognize that he is well aware of what mail-in voting and absentee voting are. Um, It was interesting because he he said in a tweet, I think yesterday, that, oh, absentee voting is fine, mail-in voting is bad. (laughs) Right. The implication there is because courts have ruled that you can use those terms interchangeably. Exactly. But 
I think that, you know, because members of the military might use absentee voting. Well, then that's good. But mail in voting is for dirty commies who live in Oregon. So it's bad. And so I think that you see this kind of concern and you also see this idea that you know, we have to know absolutely everything about the end of the election by the end of November 3rd. And at what we saw in the 2018 midterms is that that certainly wasn't true. If anyone stayed up until three o'clock in the morning, the night of the 2018 midterms, we didn't know the extent of the blue wave until about two to three days later. And on the element of the um, of the suburbs, it I think it goes to Donald Trump's idea that the American suburbs look the way they, they may have done in movies in 1986. The suburbs are an incredibly diverse area and the suburbs aren't what you think they are. This is not, you know, the American beauty suburbs. This is the suburbs of, you know, the outer reaches of Prince George's County in Maryland or Tacoma Park in northern D.C. or suburban Cincinnati which is an area if anyone has grown up in suburban Ohio or suburban Indiana, where they can be extremely diverse. You know, I played lacrosse with those kids and they were from all, a lot of kids from all over the world whose parents moved to the suburbs so that they, their kids could have a yard and be in a good school district. I think that that's what gets me about this. People of all economic statuses, white and black and Latino and from all around the world. Why do you think the people in low-income housing want to be there? People in low-income housing, white and black, and regardless, are looking for the exact same things that so many people are looking for in the suburbs that so many people are looking for. And it does strike me as a terrible irony to see President Trump, who positioned himself in 2015 and 2016 as being the voice of the downtrodden working class, essentially asking the suburbs or quote-unquote suburban housewives that you know, to ensure that poor people can't live near them by voting for him. Tim, I want to um, talk to you because you are out there in Michigan and you get out of this D.C. bubble. And most recently, you went to Scranton, Pennsylvania. And those of us following politics for a long time know that Joe Biden loves to talk about Scranton. He was just there recently. It's his childhood home. But it's also a city that over the years, Democrats have seen sort of slipping away in terms of their hold politically on that area, the Northeast Pennsylvania. And it's also the kind of place that earlier in this cycle, the Trump campaign said, you know, we're going to be able to turn out these folks at record levels. We're going to be able to find these mysterious voters who didn't turn out in 2016 to come out for Donald Trump. And uh, that's how we're going to win Pennsylvania again. We're going to swamp Democrats in these working class areas. So as you talked to folks on their porches and socially distanced uh, picnics, what did you find out? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny because it sort of ties in with with the question. It's kind of the uh, the, the other side of the coin of this question about suburbanites. And, and uh, if if the president is sort of struggling so badly and, and, and really flailing, it seems uh, to hang on to some sizable chunk of, of that suburban vote that has been bleeding away from the Republicans uh, so noticeably over the last few years, then then can he offset it somehow? you know, with a, a, a massive 
historic uh, performance among the, the white working class, which has obviously been sort of his most loyal base. And I think it's important, Amy, to, to recognize that Donald Trump, uh, for as dominant as he was with that demographic in 2016, non-college educated uh, white voters, the, the raw number of those voters who participated in 2016 actually was was not as high as we've seen in the past. And then there's a real uh, set of data to suggest that the president actually left a lot of points on the board and that he could do even much better in 2020 than he did in 2016. And so I think that's the important context for, you know, why do we look at a place like northeastern Pennsylvania that has trended so sharply uh, from blue to red in the over the last uh, decade plus, and and a, a political evolution that kind of mirrors a cultural evolution. And it was really interesting in talking with a lot of voters who sat out 2016, uh, folks who considered themselves lifelong Democrats or folks who considered themselves sort of disaffected independents. You would have a lot of conversations with individuals who would speak very fondly of the president and and certainly would align themselves with his stance against kneeling for the national anthem or, or his uh, his uh, you know very firm line against protesters and backing the police and uh, you know sort of at its lowest common denominator in terms of the culture wars people who found themselves very much aligned with the president but who in the next breath would give any number of reasons for why they would not be voting uh, this fall. Not for him, not for Biden, not for anyone. Um, and, and there is a disillusionment with the system in general, a disillusionment with the institutions of government, a, a belief that no matter who the president is, that it's not going to change their lives for the better, which is something that you hear uh, along any number of different demographic fault lines, uh, by the way. And, and so it's a challenge for Trump because with so many of the people I met, including people who voted for him in 2016, they may have been willing to look past or excuse or even enable any number of, of his behaviors uh, and sort of stick by him through any number of these other controversies. But when you have these you know, interconnected crises now facing his presidency and facing the country. There is a sense among a lot of these folks who I was speaking with that things are out of control and that Trump either doesn't care or that he doesn't know how to get a handle on it. And that's, you know, that that's a, a really terrible uh, political implication for this president, because it's one thing if he's going to bleed those suburban voters. It's one thing if he's going to fail to make inroads with minority voters as his campaign had planned. But if he cannot squeeze every ounce of juice out of that white working class vote, and that means winning over even more disaffected Democrats and turning out even more voters who stayed home in 2016, who are sort of at their nature friendly to him. If he can't do those things, then boy, the math just gets extremely difficult. I did think it was interesting, Tim, your point about the lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden, right? I mean, he really leans into the, I'm I'm the boy from Scranton, his working class roots. He was supposed to be able to make up for the deficits that Hillary Clinton had with these voters. But what you're suggesting is they don't buy Biden's story. 
uh, I, I saw a lot of cocked eyebrows and and craning necks and sort of expressions of you got to be kidding me, right? Like you actually buy that, you know, Scranton is his hometown thing. He moved when he was eight years old. You know, give me a break. Uh, and that was from Biden voters. <laughs> so, uh, yes, there, there was not a, a whole lot of buy in on the Joe from Scranton biography that we've uh, that we've become accustomed to. And look, in a certain sense here, Amy, you know, Joe Biden's playing with house money. Uh, he is going to probably overperform Hillary Clinton uh, significantly with certain blocks of the electorate, including ones that we've been discussing here today, that sort of gives him, I think, the, the, the freedom politically to not have to chase uh, some of those white working class voters with the urgency and with the intensity that, that he otherwise would have to. Uh, and, and so in a lot of ways, you know, Biden could perform just as dismally as Hillary Clinton did with these voters. He could even do a little bit worse and, and still win and maybe even still win comfortably just by nature of, of, of the numbers. And I don't think that he will necessarily. I, I think Biden probably will do at the end of the day a little bit better than Hillary Clinton did. But it's not for any great affection uh, that I've picked up either on this trip or on, you know, many, many others around the industrial Midwest with voters who uh, feel a real kinship with him or a real affection for him. The thing you hear from a lot of people who are planning to vote for Biden is that, uh, is that Trump is uh, a con artist and that the, you know, the big promises he made in 2016 that they themselves sort of bought into, or at least uh, that a lot of their friends and family and neighbors bought into that, that those promises were never going to be kept. And, and that they know now uh, that, you know, much of what he promised and much of what he ran on was fantasy. And that at the very least, what they know is that Joe Biden is somebody who uh, has been around, who has a feel for, uh, you know, the levers of government and, and who can and who can probably, uh, if nothing else, sort of restore a sense of calm and, and some degree of competence when those things seem to be missing at the moment. Jane, let's talk about Democrats for a minute. Um, as long as I've been covering politics, Democrats are much more in the category of warriors than Republicans in terms of they're going to blow it, you know, steal uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. What do you see the biggest concerns right now among Democrats about how Joe Biden might lose this thing. I mean, he's up by almost 10 points nationally, leading in all these battleground states. But what do they think could go wrong? I think that there is some concern about um, a about voter turnout. And it's not the concern about, um, you know, white college educated voters, because you're seeing those numbers staying really, really high. But there is a concern about black voters and Latino voters. And I think that there was this idea that black voters might vote for Trump or might vote for someone else, but that the more likely scenario is what happened in 2016, which is that millions of black voters simply didn't vote. And what we saw in 2017 and 2018 in special elections then during the midterms was a massive effort at voter turnout among black and Latino communities. But I think that there are a lot of Democrats who are still very concerned that Joe Biden isn't enough to get voters to vote and neither is voting against Donald Trump. And so I think that that is a potential concern. I think that that's why there are a lot of people who are waiting to see who um, Joe Biden's vice presidential pick might be, um, especially because they think that that is a that could potentially energize those voters. And especially if you have the ability to 
get both the Joe Biden, I'm not very scary, you know who I am person, but you also have a young, energetic um, vice presidential candidate who can speak more to the base of the Democratic Party. I think that that might prove effective. Tim, um, let's talk about the the future for the Republican Party. Jane alluded to this earlier about you know, a party that's sort of reckoning with where do we go from here if Trump loses? I also want to think, well, what what happens? You've done a ton of reporting uh, in your past and in your current era about sort of the Republican psyche and the inner workings of Republicans uh, in Washington. And talk to us a little bit about what happens if Trump is still trailing this badly come October do we see full scale abandonment of Trump by down ballot candidates and the jockeying for a post Trump Republican world who fills that vacuum? So let's take that first question uh, first, Amy, and, and say that for a lot of Republicans, particularly elected Republicans who uh, you know held office or were on the ballot in 2016, they have this acute case of PTSD from Excess Hollywood Weekend and uh, the, the, the you know, pervasive belief at that point that Trump was done and some of them you know, got out in front of cameras and went on local radio and, and called for Trump to exit the race. And of course he didn't. And of course he still wound up winning and there was no shortage of uh, of, of not just, uh, you know, sort of anger and, and shame, uh, you know, thrown upon them by their constituents, but, but also a, a sense of, you know, many of the same Republicans who had uh, sort of written Trump off at various points throughout that 2016 primary were really kicking themselves uh, later on for, for, for um, believing that even something as, uh, kind of crazy and eye popping as that access Hollywood tape could take him down. I mean, they're like, for as much as you may think that that Democrats and the media uh, mythologize uh, the Teflon Don and, and this guy who could shoot somebody in the middle of fifth Avenue mm-hmm. and get away with it. And that nothing can take this guy down. Like as, as, as searing as that is in our imaginations, it is all the more so in the imaginations of Republicans, right? Like they, you know, and, and this is where, you know, we can overdo it sometimes with with the talk about Stockholm syndrome or or how he has staged this hostile takeover. But like in that sense, he really has. And, and there is a psychology to the elected Republican who feels sort of trapped in this cage uh, of, of Trump's making. And, and so that's a long way of saying that I would be awfully surprised if you saw any sort of, uh, you know, mass exodus away from Trump or, or people jumping ship in, in huge numbers in October, even if things look absolutely terrible. And, you know, e- even if the, the numbers suggest that he's going to lose in a, you know, it, that, that, that Biden's going to win 400 electoral votes and that, and that Trump is just absolutely doomed and that people are getting routed up and down the ballot uh, on the Republican side. I still don't think you're going to see a huge number of people jumping ship mm-hmm. if for no other reason than the fact that these folks do realize that there is going to be this reckoning when Trump leaves office, whether that's uh, in, in four months or in four years. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of Republicans have begun to think 
more concretely about the post-Trump era and turn some of their attention to what does conservatism look like post-Trump? What does Republicanism look like post-Trump? And they recognize, Amy, that even once Donald Trump is out of office, that a, a sizable chunk of that sort of core Republican base is, is still going to self-identify as, you know, as MAGA loyal, as, as, as very much uh, favorable towards the president, uh, as, you know, galvanized by his message. And you better believe that for as long as Donald Trump is uh, alive and has a Twitter account, then he is going to be speaking to these voters. And so th the way that, you know, when I've had a lot of conversations with Republicans about this, the way that I very crudely categorize that post-Trump party is, you know, in, into thirds, basically the first third being the, the diehard MAGA for life crowd who, you know, Republicans who are going to be uh, running and campaigning uh, for the rest of their lives on, on, on the Trump message and uh, pushing really hard and, and, and unapologetically uh, forward in the direction of sort of economic nationalism and cultural antagonism and sort of shameless xenophobia and the rest. Uh, and then the second third is going to be a group of Republicans that break really, really sharply away from that. And I think that's probably, at least in the near term, the smallest of those thirds. Right. But this is a group of Republican politicians and aspiring elected officials who are going to try and strike as sharp a contrast as they can with the Trump era, try and turn the page abruptly on the Trump era, do everything they can to signal to the masses that what we just lived through is, is an aberration and it does not represent the values of the Republican Party and we are here to restore them, right? And then I think the third and final group is the hybrid, and that's probably the biggest group for some period of time moving forward. People are, who are going to try and bridge the gap and, and try and have it both ways, as difficult as that may seem, people who are going to understand that there is this, this natural and in some ways healthy appeal that Donald Trump struck on a purely economic note with a lot of disaffected voters who believe that both parties left them behind that the elites in Washington and on Wall Street do not care about them, and and that the Republican Party really grew intellectually complacent over a generation on issues of, of trade and, and immigration and all kinds of other things. And so how do you harness that message on an economic front while simultaneously uh, turning away from the xenophobia and from the fear-mongering and from the nativism and, and try and build truly a more in inclusive and aspirational and welcoming party. That, that third group is, is by far the most interesting to watch. And that's where I think you're going to see a, a lot of folks, you know, putting their eggs in that basket for 2024, trying to figure out how they can straddle those two universes without sort of falling into either one of them. And it's going to be a tightrope that's sort of impossible to walk, but it's going to be highly entertaining, highly entertaining for us to watch them try to walk it. Tim, Jane, thank you so much for your insights this morning. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You bet.
This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch. He has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. It's politics with Amy Walter. The presidential election is taking up almost all of the political oxygen these days, but a fierce battle for control of the Senate is also taking place this year. One of those races is in Iowa, a state which has seen more than 44,000 cases of coronavirus since March. Earlier this year, Republican Senator Joni Ernst was considered a relatively safe bet for re-election. But today, she and President Trump have seen their numbers slump. Today, she's fighting off a challenge from Democrat Teresa Greenfield. We interviewed Greenfield last week on the show. I spoke with Senator Ernst about her upcoming race and how she thinks the president is handling the pandemic. Well, as I've said before, I was very pleased that the president acted so swiftly on shutting down our borders um, from, you know, travelers that were coming from hot spots all around the globe. And the Democrats criticized him so heavily for shutting down our borders and trying to prevent the spread of coronavirus. So, you know, moving ahead, of course, we have Operation Warp Speed right now. And and I don't think our media talks nearly enough about this project that's being undertaken by the federal government, by our Department of Defense, and by private industry, especially our pharmaceutical companies, our researchers, our developers, on uh, finding a path towards a vaccination and, of course, therapeutics. Well, I guess that's the bigger question, right, which is, you know, yes, there was the border being closed, but that was quite some time ago. And you still have outbreaks all across the country. You have schools scrambling to figure out what they're going to do, parents trying to figure out their own childcare situations, and really a significant majority of Americans who believe that this virus has just not been dealt with, there's not been leadership there. So I guess that's what I want to ask you as you're going around in Iowa, do you think that voters there believe that it's been handled effectively from the president? I do. And I do hear from Iowans all the time and and not just, you know, people that are supporters of the president. And I would say that our governor um, working in conjunction with the federal government and the president has done a phenomenal job. And I think we need to look for leadership with our governors because every state is different. So I'm just very thankful that as Iowans, we've had the opportunity to continue in our agricultural daily duties and that we haven't been shut down completely. So mm. I think that our economy does have a great chance at recovering. And and ch- you mentioned childcare and working heavily in the area of childcare to make sure that we do have childcare available, that we do have that workforce available to care for our kiddos when moms and dads are returning back to work. So when we look at the polling recently that shows the the president's standing in your state has fallen considerably since the beginning of the year. Do you not blame 
the pandemic and his response to the pandemic on that? Or is there something else that you think is going on? Well, I am a person that won't actually pay much attention to the polls. Um, We have uh, yet three months to go Mm -hmm. before the general election, and the polls have been wrong so many times. And so I I know, again, that I speak to Iowans every single day, and I travel from the smallest of counties to the most populated of counties. I talk with folks of every political stripe, independents and Democrats and Republicans, And I get, you know, of course, mixed thoughts, but uh, the pandemic, large in part, again, because of the leadership in the state of Iowa, uh, we've been able to drive through. It's been tough on so many families. We know that. But again, we are following those CDC recommendations and our public health experts, and we will move as safely and responsibly as we can. And hopefully we will start to see... um, those vaccinations and therapeutics coming out of Operation Warp Speed. So as you're going across Iowa, I'm sure you have seen the many ads that are playing in your state and your Democratic opponent, Teresa Greenfield, and some of the groups backing her say that you are someone who's in the back pocket of corporate interests, that you went to Washington to change things. You were going to make those at the who were feeding at the trough squeal, and that you actually have been changed by Washington instead of you actually changing it. What's your response to that? Oh, for heaven's sakes. Um, I'm actually the rural Iowan in this race, and the only time I've been away from rural Iowa was due to military obligations. I live about six miles from where I grew up, and every weekend I return home. I was not the establishment candidate in my first race, and I'm not the establishment candidate in this race. Teresa Greenfield is actually the establishment candidate, and much to the chagrin of Democrats across Iowa, she was handpicked to run by Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, you know, a New Yorker who came in and selected Teresa Greenfield because he knew that he could control her by spending $10 million in her primary. $10 million. So when they talk about corporate interests and money in this campaign, I would remind everybody that she has taken over $700,000 of corporate lobbyist money. Um, while she says she won't take corporate PAC money, I really want to know what the difference is. Um, so when we talk about, you know, who's the, the Washington, D.C. in this equivalent, I would say it is actually Miss Teresa Greenfield. Um, she's backed by Washington through and through. So, you know, with the fundraising dollars, um, certainly she's outraising me by a lot. And it's not all coming from Iowa. It's coming from coastal liberal elites, which have nothing to do with Iowa our ag economy, our rural health care systems. So, you know, I I think it's ironic that she's trying to portray that. You know, I live in Montgomery County. It is a very modest county, an agricultural county in southwest Iowa. I don't live in the big city. She lives in one of the wealthiest zip codes in the state of Iowa. And for her to say, I'm D.C., Um, I had a friend that commented the other day, they're like, Joni, how can they say you've gone Washington, D.C. when you haven't even gone Des Moines, Iowa? 
You know, I am as about as rural as they come. I represent our rural interests. I'm from a farming family. You know, I still have family members that are engaged in farming today. And those interests will always be the interests that I'm standing up for. But Miss Teresa Greenfield, I don't know where she stands on those issues. Um, she doesn't come out long enough to explain her policy positions. So to show how not beholden you are to whatever special interests or how independent you are. Can you give us some examples where you stood up and said to your party leadership, to the president, that you were going a different way? Oh, absolutely. I can give you a laundry list of examples there. And one thing that that I will uh, just explain my squeal act when she says, you know, I'm not making people in Washington, D.C. squeal. My squeal act was actually included in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. And that act actually rolled back a tax break that Congress was getting. And so we did away with that tax break and that did not make me popular with anyone of any party, but we felt it was important to do because our constituents didn't receive those same tax breaks. And so, you know, the Squeal Act, we got that done. I have been pushing uh, for the presidential perks bill, which would eliminate special perks for former presidents at taxpayer expense, um, which has not made me popular with President Bush or President Obama. And I certainly have dissented from the president in areas, even in the area of national defense, you know, something that I obviously have experience in and something that I feel very strongly about when it came to removing troops from Syria. Um, Just very suddenly, I sat down and spoke with the president about that and did convince him to leave um, a small number of troops in place to protect our allies there. So I'm not afraid to take on people of my own party. Um, and, but, you know, overall, the point is it's not only those that I take on, but it's also those that I embrace when we're working on bipartisan pieces of legislation. And by and large, the majority of the bills that I work on, they are bipartisan. And so I have been able to work with colleagues from across the aisle, whether it's Elizabeth Warren on my Credit for Caring Act, which is uh, broadly supported by AARP, or whether it's working with Amy Klobuchar on issues like childcare. I mean, there are so many things that I have done with members of the other party. And again, it's because we do have that mutual respect and we're willing to work together to make a difference regardless of what letter comes behind our names. The president likes to come to Iowa. If he said, I'm going to come to Iowa and do some rallies there before the election, do you think that's a good idea? And would you show up there with him? So I think the president is is very cognizant of the fact that we want to safeguard our population. And so, you know, it's always based upon the information that's available on the ground. But I think by moving to the virtual rallies is a wise decision. And if I can join him ever virtually, I certainly would do that. And maybe by the fall, there could be an actual physical rally. But when you're you're going around right now, are you doing those things? Are you I just meeting people one on one? No, okay. I'm not doing rallies. And certainly I have resumed the 99 County tour. 
And what we encourage is the wear of, of masks, which is really important. And we're keeping it in smaller groups. And be, so I'm not accused of, you know, only picking supporters when I'm going out and touring different sites or hearing from different uh, city members, city councils. I always ask them, you know, if there are people that you wish to have included in these county tour events, please select up to 10 individuals so we can be safe and responsible mm. and social distance uh, during the events. And we leave it up to the hosts of those visits. So again, I'm not uh, predetermining who's in my visits. I will leave that to the folks on the ground. And it's always a really wonderful mix of you know, different types of supporters out there, but obviously all of them very, very focused on their own communities, their own healthcare systems, what have you. So do you think there should, though, be a mandate for mask wearing? At this point, I don't believe that there should be a mandate, but I do believe there needs to be a certain level of personal responsibility. And so I always do show leadership on this issue by making sure that when I'm in public, I am wearing a mask. And that's not just when I'm out on the campaign trail or, you know, when I am um, doing a, a county tour, I at home will make sure that I am wearing a mask. Um, in Red Oak, my hometown, you know, we've got two grocery stores and a Dollar General, and that's that's really about it. So when I'm out, if I have to run an errand, I'll put my put my mask in before I run into Dollar General or Hy-Vee, you know, just just to protect myself, um, to protect my mother, because, you know, my mother is elderly. She is vulnerable. I pick her up and drive her to church every Sunday. And so when we're engaged in those activities, I am wearing my mask, I'm using hand sanitizer, I'm washing frequently, because it's not just about me, I want to make sure that I'm safeguarding the vulnerable people in my family and people that right. I love. So that's what I don't quite understand what the risk would be to say, just like you're required to wear a seatbelt or do other things that protect other people. Why wearing, um, saying to people, if you're going to go into any sort of public space, you, you've got to be wearing a mask. Yeah, and I think a lot of people will disagree with that, and that's why I think that it is important just simply to show leadership, and and if you are showing leadership, other people will follow, and so that's why I do it. I think it's important to do it. Our governor does it. Um, again, she's just been such a strong leader in this area, and I just don't think that at the federal level, that's a decision we should be making. Um, I would use uh, some of the counties in Iowa as an example, where they have seen no, you know, virtually no incidence of, of COVID or very, very few numbers, you know, to mandate that, that would be very difficult, I think, for a number of those citizens. But, you know, again, I think this is a, a much more localized issue, a state issue, and not one that we should be mandating from the federal level. Well, Senator Ernst, I appreciate you taking all this time to speak with me. Please say, stay safe there on the campaign trail and in D.C. You betcha, Amy. Thank you. And you stay safe and stay strong. Thank you. You bet. All right, everybody, we have another episode in your feed this weekend as well. It's all about Georgia's elections and how they're working to avoid all the problems they had during their June primary. 
Make sure you get into that action and leave us a rating while you're listening. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. The Takeaway.